0: Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity titled, A Practical Look on Cardiorenal Protection for CKD in Type 2 Diabetes Applying Recent Data, is provided by Medtelligence. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives.
1: Achieving optimal outcomes when treating patients with chronic kidney disease and type 2 diabetes remains challenging and requires a multidisciplinary approach to prevent progressive renal dysfunction and cardiorenal events. What are the latest evidence and guidelines telling us about how to manage these patients with non-steroidal mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists or MRAs in the real world? Well, this is a CME on Reach MD, and I'm Dr. Carolyn Lam. And I'm Dr. Pam Taub. And I am Dr. Luisa
0: Karamori
2: and I am Dr. Ana Febriand.
1: Thank you so much, Louisa, Ana Maria, Pam, for being with us today. Pam, could we start with you? Could you perhaps tell us about a case of early CKD in a patient with type 2 diabetes and what the latest evidence says and how that impacts
3: your therapeutic choices? Well, I'd love to. So let me tell you about a real patient, one of my patients that I've followed for many years. She is a 73-year-old woman with long-standing diabetes. Her diabetes was diagnosed about 15 years ago. She also has hyperlipidemia, and she presents for routine follow-up. And she sees me as a cardiologist because she has a family history of early coronary artery disease, and she has an elevated lipoprotein A. So her current medication regimen is rosuvastatin, 10 milligrams daily. For her diabetes, she's on metformin, 1,000 milligrams twice a day. She's also on the GLP-1 receptor agonist, dulaglutide, at 1 milligram per week. And we obtain recent blood work, and that reveals that her hemoglobin A1c is 7.5. Her potassium is 3.9, and her creatinine is normal at 0.64, and her calculated EGFR is greater than 90. I also check a UACR to look for microalbuminuria because of her longstanding diabetes, and that is a little surprising. It's elevated at 147, and so she's then started on an SGLT2 inhibitor, empagliflozin. but two weeks later, she develops a urinary tract infection, which I treat. Then four weeks later, she develops a genital mycotic infection, which I also treat, but she discontinues the medication and doesn't want to continue with the SGLT2 receptor class. So then we discuss other options in terms of what can I do to prevent her progression of renal disease. And I start at 20 milligrams daily, because her potassium is 3.9. It's in a range where you can start with a higher dose. and then. Three months later, I check a UACR, and it's nice to see that decrease from 147 milligrams per gram to 96 in a short period, very consistent with what we've seen in clinical trials with use of a non-steroidal MRA. Louisa, what do you think about this case? Would you have done different?
0: Yeah, no, I think that's quite interesting. And uh, this patient, of course, uh, it's very similar to many of the patients we see in clinic, long-standing diabetes with some microalbuminuria. And as we all know well, many times cardiovascular disease is not... Uh, as taught uh, in females, and we need to be careful with that. Sometimes we think about risks and we think about male patients at high risk for cardiovascular disease, which they are, but we need to keep in mind that uh, our female patients, especially those with diabetes, are also at very uh, high risk for cardiovascular disease, and I think that increased the ACR may also be a marker for this increased risk, as Penn was alluding to. Uh, We do see, unfortunately, some patients who cannot tolerate the SGLT2 inhibitors, and in that regard, some patients also have a urinary incontinence, and that makes things a little bit more complicated. I have a patient very similar to the one who Penn presented, who has urinary incontinence, and there is no way we could use SGLT2 inhibitors for her. So it's great to have other options that we can use and still get the beneficial effects in terms of cardio and renal protection for these patients.
1: Well, you know what? Pam, I'm actually really admiring the way you managed this case, because as a fellow cardiologist, I'm not so sure I would have checked the UACR. So I'm humbled with the finding that you could have a completely normal GFR and have proteinuria, which indicates you need to do something about it. So kudos that you did that. But I, I know that that's also based on the new data, right? So Anna Maria, could you perhaps tell us a little bit about that new data and why us cardiologists need to start learning to check UACR? Thank you.
2: Cardiologist and also family physician. As me as a primary care physician, I have also many problems because we are not thinking enough about the risk the patient has because of the kidney. Not only the GFR, we must uh, we must also ask for the albuminuria. And that is a missing value in I think is 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 general for all the specialists. And it's very important just to have both. EGFR, and also albuminuria to assess properly the risk of this patient. You will present a patient in stage one or two, and these patients are at high risk of cardiovascular events, and we must ask also the the EGFR and also the albuminuria. There is more than tenfold higher risk of cardiovascular event in patients with chronic kidney disease, stage one or two, than patients without Chronic kidney disease, and that is a crucial aspect. We have asked for the albuminuria because it's a cardiovascular risk-dependent uh, value.
1: I noticed, Pam, too, that you commented on, you know, being sure to look at the potassium too. And I think one thing that we we need to always remember is the non-steroidal MRAs still need us to be responsible in looking at the potassium as well. Could I just ask your quick thoughts on
3: sort of how you manage that? So this patient's an example of someone who had a potassium of 3.9. And so per kind of the expert consensus guidelines on how you practically manage these patients, that's a patient that could be easily started on a higher dose of finerenone at 20 milligrams. But if you have a patient that has a history of hyperkalemia or the potassium levels are elevated in any historical context, maybe it was six months ago, or if their current potassium level is over 4.5, you could be more conservative and start at 10 milligrams, recheck the potassium in about a month, and then you can increase it to 20 milligrams. So having two doses really gives you flexibility because a lot of these patients have a lot of other medications, such as ARNEs, ACE inhibitors, ARB's, where they can have higher potassium levels.
0: So, I think that another point, depending on your patient, that's quite important is that the GFR is normal, right? So, with a GFR above a it- at night, it's very unlikely that the patient would develop a hyperkalemia and that allows us to start on the higher dose as Penn did on this case. And I completely agree that uh, we don't see as often patients being checked for urinary albumin in general, even among endocrinologists, even though has been on the guidelines for it you know, over a decade, uh, but certainly seeing our colleges, colleagues from cardiology also checking urinary opium, I think that's going to help us identify these patients at high risk, especially now that we have therapies that can reduce their renal and cardiovascular risk. So this is really, really important to look for these patients, identify these patients, and give them the therapies as Penna was doing with her patient here.
1: Thank you, Louisa. I think we needed a real, real good reminder. And if I could also share with everyone, super excited at the ESC, we released our 2023 update of the heart failure guidelines. And there's a focus on prevention of heart failure and a new strong recommendation that in patients with type 2 diabetes and CKD, we should be considering finerenone. So, you know, I think this is bringing it sort of close to our hearts as cardiologists now. And so I will change my ways. So thank you, Louisa. And perhaps could we now hear about on the other spectrum of CKD, Louisa, could you share a patient who has established CKD also in type two diabetes, and perhaps let us know how the new guidelines may impact your treatment approach, and also, How this approach may differ from the case that Pam had shared.
0: Sure, thank you. So this is also a patient of mine and he had been my patient for several years. This gentleman is actually a physician and he's a little bit younger than the patient that Penn presented, but he has had diabetes for over 20 years. He used to be quite overweight, has lost some weight and is working on that. In addition to his diabetes, he has hypertension, he has atrial fibrillation, hyperlipidemia, and as I mentioned, he is still obese. So he has been treated with several medications over the course of these many years and currently he is on an extended release formulation of metformin that he takes 1000 milligrams per day he is on a ibisartan that's an endotensin receptor blocker that he takes once a day he's also on an sglt2 inhibitor that we started quite a while back and he is on metoprolol because of his AF, and he's also on semaglutide because he was really struggling to lose weight. He's doing a great job with his diet and exercise, and he has been really great on that. So we added a GLP-1 RA to facilitate weight loss for him. And he chose to use an oral formulation for this agent at the time we started. He is also in a seven, and he still takes some insulin to control his diabetes. In addition to that, because of his hyperlipidemia, he is in two lipid lowering agents that he takes daily. His blood pressure is reasonable, not ideally controlled, 134 by 82 with a BMI of 36 when I start seeing him. His glycemic is very well controlled with an A1C of 6.8%. His LDL is at 69, his triglycerides at 96 Potassium is great, 4.4, and with a creatinine of 1.5, this brings his estimated GFR to 51, and his urinary albumin-to-creatinine ratio is actually 405. So this came down over the years with the therapies that we have started, but he's still, you know, with an elevated ACR and that brings him to the macroalbuminuria or proteinuria or high albuminuria range. We have all these new names now, but that. In a high risk category for this patient with increased urinary blooming level and this GFR of 51. So he also has some other things that are important here. His dad died years back from end-stage renal disease and he had type 2 diabetes. And he really wants to do all that he can to reduce his cardiovascular risk, which, is of course, understandable. Not always a patient will come to you with these comments, I want to reduce my risk of dying from heart disease or having a kidney problem. But this patient, you know, because he, perhaps he's in the health, care, he had this request. And he also asked me if we could look at his medications and try to reduce a little bit the number of pills that he was taking throughout the day. So we know he has stage 3A from CKD, he has albuminuria, and he has these multiple comorbidities. And although he's tolerating his medications well, and his blood sugars are well-controlled and his lipids are reasonable, I think we can do more for his uh, cardio renal protection. So we have a long discussion, and of course, with the results of Figaro Fidelio and the uh, Fidelity program, as Caroline mentioned earlier, we talk about using a non-steroidal MRA, and he he was interested in using finerenone because his GFR was lower than 60, we started him on 10 milligrams daily. We checked potassium four weeks later. His potassium was still great, 4.6. There was a little normal variation. His uh, estimated GFR, it was 49. We went up to 20 milligrams, and he did great. We checked again a few weeks later, and his potassium was at 4.7. So we continue him on the 20 milligrams dose. He came back again three months after this new increase on dose and uh, he was doing great, but then he asked to to reduce the number of drugs that he was taking if possible. So we started combining some of his drugs. So he's doing well. His blood pressure now is at target. He lost uh, more weight and now his BMI is on the overweight category, no longer under obesity. And importantly, with the addition of funeranone, his uh, urinary albumin creatinine ratio that was 405 dropped to 273. So a significant decline, a little bit over 30%. And that's what we usually see with these agents on average of about 30%. And so he's really doing well. So a bit more complex, more advanced disease, more complications. And we do see quite a lot of these patients in the clinic as well.
1: And for those just tuning in, you're listening to CME on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Carolyn Lam, and here with me today are Drs. Pam Taub, Dr. Anna-Maria Serrian, and Dr. Louisa Karimori. We're discussing a practical look at cardiorenal protection for CKD in type 2 diabetes. Wow, thank you, Louisa. It is a bit more complex, but I think some the kind of patients we really see day-to-day so that was very, very helpful and sort of showing how careful you are uh, in managing this case, especially with regards to potassium and so on, with, compared to what you were, your case and the starting doses and everything. So thank you, Louisa. Ana Maria, what, what do you think?
2: Yes, I, I agree with you that it's a complex case, but we can do things for this kind of patients. If we put this patient in the category heat map, We have a patient at very high risk of cardiovascular and renal events, and very high risk of mortality. And now we can do things for this kind of patient. We can reduce this risk. So it's very important just we keep these patients in mind because we can do things for these patients. The Cádigo guidelines and the other guidelines recommend three classes of drugs to, to reduce the risk in this patient with chronic kidney disease and type 2 diabetes that are rash inhibitors, SGLT2 inhibitors, and also finerenone. And also the uh, European Society of Cardiology guidelines recommend to reduce the cardiovascular and kidney failure risk three, three things, SGLT2 inhibitors, blood pressure control, and also finerenone. So here we have a case. A typical case that we can do things for this patient and reduce the risk they have because they, they have because of the of their kidney.
0: Yeah, I, I do agree. If I can chime in just for a second here, so what we usually use, uh, caroline is we consider normal values that go up to thirty milligrams of albumin per gram of creatinine if we use a spot urine collection, and the values that are start on albuminuria start at 30 and then that's divided between Low albuminuria, or the old term, perhaps that we used was micro albuminuria and that goes up to three hundred. And then at three hundred milligrams per gram, we start what would be called macroalbuminuria, or high albuminuria, or that's the equivalent of proteinuria for our patients. That would be the three hundred milligrams per gram is the equivalent of five hundred milligrams of protein in the urine in general. So that's why we sometimes refer to it as proteinuria as well. So all these patients that have albuminuria, so starting at 30, they have higher risk. The ones at 300 have an even greater risk. And as your GFR decline, and we start from stage one to stage five, where stage five is end-stage renal disease with need for transplant or dialysis, and patients really have a GFR lower than 15 at that stage five. So that's where these patients move towards higher albuminuria and lower GFR, as you move that direction, both your renal risk for progression towards end-stage renal disease and also your cardiovascular risk significantly increased. it.
1: Thank you so much. So 3,300. I think we can remember that. So thank you. Pam, one, one other question though. In your patient, you know, the, the poor patient couldn't tolerate the SGLT2 inhibitor. But in a case like this, and we've gone through the guidelines that say perhaps we should consider both the SGLT2 inhibitor and finerenone, are you comfortable starting both at the same
3: time, and why not? So in my clinical practice, because when I see the patient, it's when they're very engaged, yeah. and because follow-up sometimes takes a long time, patients sometimes don't have easy access, what I do is I try to start all the medications, but I have them stagger it. So I'll give them instructions and say, start the SGLT2 inhibitor. If no side effects after two weeks, start the finerenone. I typically don't start both together because if they do have a side effect, sometimes it's hard to figure out exactly where the side effect is coming from. But it's really nice to use SGLT2 inhibitors and finerenone together. There's some data that says that there's some synergy there, and there's actually decreased incidence of hyperkalemia. So I love using that combination.
0: Yeah, I would say that I, I agree with Penn. In the, now we don't yet have data saying that we can start these agents together, but we will. So there is an ongoing trial that will answer that question if it's safe to start both agents at the same time. And I'm guessing here that the answer will be yes, because uh, as Penn mentioned, we may have a beneficial effect in they reduce the risk of hyperkalemia. That's, of course, more important than those who have a reduced GFR to start with. So you may get some extra beneficial effect on the risk of hyperkalemia there. Uh, And we... um, may have a synergistic effect on reducing of urinary immune. So that's going to answer an important question. I do the same in practice. I start with medication, tell the patient if everything is going well, we will start the next in sequence, just to keep things moving. And we do the same with medications when we are managing hyperglycemia per se for example, right? We know that the patients have elevated the levels and we will need to add some other medications. We tell them or to ramp up on doses or to add another medication uh, in the interim and we check them quickly uh, if needed for labs sometimes without having an appointment just to facilitate care uh, for this patient so that they don't wait months and months until the new medication or a higher dose is introduced.
2: Yes I am fully agree with your comments and also we 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 have to make an effort just to avoid inertia because sometimes if, if you are going uh, if you are doing anything step by step some some colleagues can 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 do inertia and, and it's very important just to treat these kind of patients
1: so Anna-Marie, i want to pick up on that point again about the inertia that you brought up i think it's very important but i also have to say i think physicians other than inertia also have a fear of causing risk that they don't quite understand. So, you know, especially when it's a new medication and so on. So do you, could you elaborate a little bit on what you in practice first look for in terms of safety and perhaps warn the patient as you start Finarenone? I think it's very
2: important to talk with our patients about what they should expect of the drug, of the drug that we are prescribing. The positive effects, and also talk about the adverse effect that they can they can experience. And it's very important just yes, to uh, tell them that we have to monitorize potassium and GFR. It's very important to talk to them that in one month uh, time we are going to to ask for a blood test with potassium and also the GFR, and give them the the, the posology that we are going
1: to to follow.
2: Wow. Thank
1: you. And could you give us perhaps some specifics about what the guidelines say? Maybe some, you know, alarm bells should ring when potassium levels are a certain level or how often to monitor? Yes, we have to do it simple.
2: And I think it's very important just to keep in mind that we have to start on when we have a potassium level less than five. We have to stop finerenone with a potassium level more than 5.5. And we can initiate with EGFR more than 25. One month after we start the, the finerenone, if the EGFR decline is less than 30, we can increase the dose. If we have to start with 10, we can increase to 20. And if the potassium level is less than 4.8, we continue with the dose or increase if necessary. If the potassium level is between 4.8 and 5.5 we maintain the dose and if we have as i have said before if we have potassium levels more than 5.5 we stop the treatment we and after we have to do the blood test again and reintroduce when the potassium level is less
1: than five wow oh, that was that was very very helpful i think very reassuring To go through that, thank you, Ana Maria. Louisa, perhaps could you also share, you know, even as we're thinking now of how to use this in practice, what to look out for, how to monitor, how do you identify the right patient that we should quickly start this on?
0: Yeah, I think that really starts with screening our patients. And uh, we have been talking about this for a long time. And we saw in the case that Ben presented, again, that the uh, patient had a completely normal GFR, but had increased urinary albumin levels. So it's really important that we check both uh, get a creatinine so that we get an estimation of the patient's glomerular filtration rate, but also check the urinary albumin levels. It's very simple. We just needed to ask them to do a spark urine. But for some reason, sometimes even when we order, patients don't get it done. So I think that's very important to talk to the patients and explain why we need that test to I think that when that discussion takes place, why we are doing things, I think that's more likely that people will go to the lab and get that urine test done. It's very interesting. Sometimes they go to the lab and get the blood work done, but they don't don't collect the urine. So it's really important to have uh, that conversation. So that's, I think, that's the the basis to identify these patients. Of course, we know about family history, we know about obesity, we know about dyslipidemia, we know about everything else. But we need to have these measurements that will help us to stratify the risk and the guidance in terms of therapy. So I think that we are in a time where we do have a lot to offer our patients and that's really important. We were not at this stage 10 years back, right? So now we have a lot to offer, and it's important that we offer them the therapies that we can, that we have accessible so that we can reduce their risk. And this, as we mentioned earlier, Carolyn, it's not going to be done by using a single agent. It's really a multidisciplinary approach. We needed to have a uh, Colleagues involved we need to have the patient very involved on that approach and then understand that we may need to use multiple medications to really significantly reduce uh, the risk of cardiovascular and renal disease in a meaningful way.
1: That's so beautifully put, isn't it? So, Louisa, if I may, you talked about identifying the right patients, making sure we give the right treatment. But I really love what both of you emphasized about communicating. So making sure we communicate to the patient the benefit-risk, and the benefit is huge. It's cardio-renal protection from real events. And then the risk, but the nice thing, it's a manageable risk that if we monitor properly, we can manage it together with the patient, but please, they need to help us and not just skip all the tests and so on and so forth, right? Pam, anything else, of uh, pearls of wisdom to add?
3: I think it's all about starting early and detecting disease early. That's where the elegance of medicine is, is detecting disease before it's obvious. So detecting that microalbuminuria before the EGFR starts to decline and acting on that.
1: All right. Well, this has really been an incredibly helpful and educational uh, discussion. Thank you so much, Pam, Anna Maria, Louisa. Could I now give each of you just a chance to give your take-home messages to everyone? I could start with Louisa first, please.
0: Sure, I, I do echo what Pam said, important to check urinary albumin, but please don't forget to get a creatinine and get an estimated GFR, because the same way that we have patients who have albuminuria and have a normal GFR, we do have patients who have no albuminuria but have a rather reduced GFR. So both these factors existing. So it's important to check both.
2: Thank you. Ana Maria? Yes, I agree, and my message is, Early intervention, please check the kidney of, of your patient with both EGFR and also albuminuria. Think in both. Keep in mind the risk your patients have because of the kidney and act when you need to treat this risk and reduce the risk of your patients.
3: Thank you. And Pam. Well, in addition to early detection, aggressive treatment with the multiple agents that we have available is paramount. And don't be afraid of the side effects like hyperkalemia. Just have a strategy for close monitoring. Thank you. I don't think I could add anything
1: more except to thank you, Pam, and Maria, Luisa, once again, and to thank the audience for listening in today. It has been a very valuable time, and I have learned a lot. I trust the audience has too. Thank you.
0: You have been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by MedTelligence. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to ReachMD.com slash MedTelligence. Thank you for listening.